Hi, this is Austin from Orlando, Florida. Every summer I take some time to explore our national parks and go on a few hikes. Right now I'm talking to you from the top of Ryan Mountain in Joshua Tree National Park. This podcast was recorded at... 12.09 p.m. on Wednesday, the 28th of June. Things may have changed since then, but me, I'll be preparing for my next adventure. All right, here's today's show. I do love all the timestamps from Mountaintops. I hope he sends some pictures. Yeah, seriously. Let's have pictures. Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Frank Ordonez. I also cover the White House. And I'm Greg Myrie in Kiev, Ukraine. And the world is still trying to figure out exactly what happened in Russia over the weekend and what it means for the country's leader, Vladimir Putin. What we do know is that Yevgeny Prigozhin, who leads a mercenary fighting force known as the Wagner Group, and that force has been a big part of Russia's efforts in Ukraine, turned his ire on Russia's leadership and sent his troops into Russia driving towards Moscow before reaching a deal and stopping the advance. Uh, It was this stunning spectacle of instability in Russia. Um, And before we get into the U.S. political reaction, Greg, you were there in Ukraine watching this unfold next door. Um, So tell us what happened. Right. So, yeah, just a quick bit of background, Tam. Yevgeny Prigozhin, this mercenary leader, I mean, he's been around for years. His group has been in the Middle East and Africa, and it's played an increasingly powerful role in Russia's war in Ukraine. In fact, it it sort of led the fight uh, in the in the eastern part of the country in the past several months. But Prigozhin was very much at odds with the Russian military leadership. He said they weren't giving him enough weapons. They were starving him of ammunition. And he's very prominent and good on social media. So he kept making these increasingly sharp criticisms of, of Russian military leaders. And this tension just kept growing and growing. So he had a lot of beef, but then he took an action that, at least from the outside, looked like he was trying to invade Moscow or something. So what was he doing? What was he trying to accomplish? Did he do it? Yeah. So this this friction just exploded into open rebellion over the weekend. Um, he put out another sort of incendiary uh, video criticizing the Russian defense minister and the head of the army. And then he took over a key military headquarters in southern Russia. It's actually just outside Ukraine, and it's really sort of been the headquarters for the Russian war effort there. And then on top of that, he sent his fighters rumbling down the highway toward Moscow. Now, that's a 600-mile trip. And on Saturday, they traveled nearly 500 miles, and, and nobody was really stopping them. Eventually, they came under fire from the Russian Air Force, and the mercenaries shot down a half dozen Russian Air Force planes and helicopters. But then suddenly, Prigozhin called the whole thing off, told his forces to make a U-turn, ordered them back to base, and then Prigozhin agreed to go into exile in Belarus. So all of this utterly bizarre, to say the least. So, Franco, here in the U.S., we were on duty this weekend trying to get comment out of the White House, trying to figure out what the U.S. thought of this. 
And they were very quiet. Yeah, it was really crazy. It was all this, you know, as Greg's just pointing out, this bizarre actions that were happening. All of our jaws are completely uh, dropped. Uh, Biden uh, was pretty quiet about it. He didn't say anything, actually, until after the Wagner groups uh, turned around. It wasn't until Monday that Biden finally addressed it. And he said pretty clearly that he just didn't want to give Putin any excuse to try to blame the West, to blame the United States, to blame NATO allies, just didn't want anyone to think that the United States was meddling into it. You know, and I also spoke with some other former advisors who told me that he also probably wanted to send uh, a message to Putin that he wasn't going to exploit this. I mean, tensions are so high right now that there is some fear of some kind of misunderstanding, that this fraught situation could get even worse if there is a misunderstanding and kind of spiral out of control. And, you know, when there's instability in a place like Russia, that's always a concern, especially when you have a country that's sitting on such a large nuclear arsenal. Yeah, I mean, there's this adage that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. But in this case, that seemed not to be true. And uh, it was very clear that the White House, that G7 and, and NATO leaders, all of these leaders around the world who were working the phones, talking to each other over the weekend, they were worried about instability. The reason that instability is such a big concern around the world when it has to do with Russia is it has to do with the nuclear weapons. We're talking thousands and thousands of nuclear weapons, um, the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world. And I do want to make clear that when the White House is asked about this question, they emphasize that there is no indication that that anything has changed in terms of Russia's posture, of the possibility of Putin using those weapons. That is not the case. But I was speaking with Sam Cherup, who advised former President Barack Obama, and he says the immediate concern is not so much about the misuse of those weapons, but about who will have control over those weapons. And, you know, be careful what you wish for. This episode served as a reminder that, yes, everyone can get behind the objective of like weakening the Russian war machine, but there's a risk of inadvertently pushing it too far. You know, and he's saying, you know, Biden talked about how he directed his team to kind of prepare for all these different scenarios, you know, and Prigozhin has been accused of some pretty awful stuff. So his march to Moscow from the United States standpoint raises a lot of questions about, well, who would you actually rather have in control of those weapons? Is it Prigozhin? Is it Putin? I mean, for some folks, Putin may be a little bit more palatable. Greg, I want to ask about Prigozhin and what he's up to now. Uh, because I can't imagine doing something like this that embarrasses, at the at the least, uh, Vladimir Putin on the international stage. I can't imagine that that goes over particularly well. What what happens with Prigozhin now and and all of his fighters who were were you know on the road to Moscow? Yeah, well, he's lived to see another day, uh, which was not a sure thing on on Saturday when the rebellion was underway. The president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, and he's a close ally of Vladimir Putin, uh, he says that Prigozhin has arrived as planned, and he said that Prigozhin and his men could have some land there, but this is not meant to be a military base. 
Uh, it's not clear how many of Prigozhin's men will follow him there. In Russia, President Vladimir Putin says uh, Wagner fighters won't be punished and they can stay in Russia and join the Russian army. Uh, so it seems like Wagner will be disbanded. Uh, but again, it's a little fuzzy at the moment. The immediate crisis has passed, but all of this suggests a lot of unfinished business and that there's a lot more to come. And, and many analysts really say Putin has been weakened. His authority has been challenged, and, and this could undermine him both uh, politically at home and militarily in Ukraine. So we're all watching very closely. Yeah, we uh, will be right back after a quick break to talk about what this might mean for the war in Ukraine. And we're back. And Greg, you are in Ukraine. The Wagner Group had been a big part of the Russian military effort in Ukraine, as we talked about. So what does this falling out mean for Russia's war effort in Ukraine? And what does it mean for Ukraine's defense? Well, Tam, today I, I sat down with a very senior Ukrainian general. His name is General Viktor Nazarov. And he said he thinks that if, if the Wagner Group stops fighting in Ukraine, it probably doesn't mean a whole lot in the short term. The Wagner Group uh, was very much seen as an, an offensive force, and they captured the town of Bakhmut, where the heaviest fighting took place in the war over months and months. That was last month. But since then, the Wagner Group sort of retreated, handed that over to the Russian military. Um, Prigozhin himself said they needed a little time to regroup, and they were not expected to play a big role in the sort of defensive effort that Russia is uh, undergoing right now. Now, General Nazarov said that this Ukrainian offensive, now about three weeks old, is progressing. Ukrainians have taken a few villages, advanced a few miles, but he, he acknowledged quite freely that it is very slow going, and it's a very tough slog. The Russians are very well prepared with minefields, trenches, heavy artillery. They had months to set this up. Not a lot of element of surprise here. The Ukrainian goal is to reach the country's southeast coast. That would, that would cut the Russian forces in two. It would leave one Russian force in the east, one in the south, with the Ukrainians in between. And therefore, the Russians would be much more vulnerable. But the Ukrainians are still 60 miles away from the coast with multiple layers of Russian defense waiting for them. Yeah, and I'll just add, you know, that, you know, strong defense that the Russians have been putting up is something that the White House has kind of pointed to when kind of pushing back on, you know, some of this speculation that, you know, Putin's demise is around the corner um, because Putin obviously still controls a very strong army that's fighting very vigorously. Right. And Greg, you, you were talking about it, but this is the, the season where Ukraine was supposed to be leading this big counteroffensive, there were very high expectations because they've gotten all of these weapons from the West, from from NATO members, from the U.S. and its allies. Um, and as you say, it maybe hasn't been going as quickly or as easily as perhaps the outside expectation. Yeah, I, I think that's that's fair to say. The, re, the Ukrainians are really trying to manage expectations. They're saying, look, this is not going to be easy. It's going to take weeks. It's going to take months. We have all this equipment. I'm, I've seen a lot of it, it uh, just in and around at military installations in the in the Kiev area in, in recent days. The general I spoke with also noted, though, uh, Ukraine's regular army was doing the bulk of the fighting in the early months of the war. Um, they've lost 
lost a lot of people, killed or injured. Um, now you're dealing with uh, new recruits. Many have received training in Europe and NATO countries, but it's a much younger force. Uh, it's true on the Russian side as well. So there are a lot of factors uh, in play here, um, and, but don't expect it to be easy. The Ukrainians say it'll be judged by how it ends, not that it, it has to be a movie that has to hit, hit marks uh, every, every day or every week as, as to how far they advance. Franco, does what happened in Russia change the political dynamic at all in the U.S. around support for Ukraine, especially in this critical moment for Ukraine? I mean, the U.S., uh, I mean, certainly the White House is saying that it's maintaining the same support as before. Um, and to make uh, its point, you know, officials were you know, talking about the new military package that was just introduced this week, $500 million in military aid. It's another example of how they're saying this uh, support is going to continue. I will note, though, that I mean, I think you can you can bet that this is going to be a very big discussion at the NATO summit next month in Lithuania. And there's going to be questions uh, and a lot of chatter around that table with all the leaders um, about what outcomes uh do they really want uh, in Russia if, for example, Ukraine does win the war? What does the U.S. and allies expect uh, from Russia if Ukraine wins the war? What do they want that to look like? Greg, I do want to ask you, as we close out this conversation, what this incident over the weekend has done for the U.S. perception of Putin and his influence in the region. Um, has it changed anything? Is he still the most potent adversary? Um, I, I think the answer to that is probably yes, but he's been in power more than two decades, and, and many see this this episode as the most direct challenge to his rule uh, in, in that time. He's somebody who always wants to project this image of power, and, and this episode uh, undercut that image as a strong, decisive leader in full control of events. He survived for now, still very much in power, but we see his problem mounting. We see some instability at home, a war in Ukraine that's not going well, and an economy that looks increasingly shaky. All right. Well, uh, we are going to leave it there for today, but we are still watching. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Frank Ordonez. I also cover the White House. And I'm Greg Myrie, and I cover national security. And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. 